some of you are familiar with uh, Rod and Teresa and Christ-Centered Solutions Ministry, uh, one of the things that uh, Rod encourages folks to do as they are uh, working through life and are attending Bible studies and sermon, hearing uh, sermons preached is to take notes, and I know many of you do. Um, one of the tools that he distributes through his ministry are books for note-taking, and uh, he has made some of these available for us, and there are some copies back on the table, but I wanted you to see these two. Uh, one is specifically uh, designed for youth, and even as I was going through it, I recognized that uh, uh, maybe for those of you who are doing even your own devotion time, be a great opportunity to read scripture, work through the questions that are given there uh, that will help you uh, as you track along through your own personal Bible study and then also bring them uh, on Sundays with you and make a practice of taking notes. We provide a place in our worship guides each week for sermon notes, but I uh, want to, uh, if you will, make these uh, we're making these available to you. Hope you'll pick them up and that you will use them and that they will serve you well as you have an opportunity to keep all of your sermon notes in one place uh, and be able to reference them just like we're going through Matthew's Gospel now. Uh, you could just at some point in time maybe put a tag on it and write Matthew or put on the inside of the cover of Matthew and it'll help you reference back to some of those things. But uh, I wanted you to see them so that you'll know what they look like back on the table and you'll have... Uh, have those available. Also want to encourage you, if you will, to uh, pick up one of the baby bottles. Um, and uh, those are for Lifeline Pregnancy Center. Uh, Matthew, uh, they're, they're not for you to take home and use for Providence, okay? That's, that's not what they're there for. Uh, you can take them home, but uh, we uh, take those. Um, I know we don't wind up with a lot of change anymore because we don't use a lot of cash, but make a point somehow or another uh, to, uh, to put uh, uh, money in those. And you can put, uh, you can put dollar bills in there, uh, but uh, we want to fill those up, bring them back. Uh, it's one of the methods in, uh, that we use and that Lifeline Pregnancy Center uses uh, to uh, get contributions and support during the course uh, of the year. So. Uh, we'll be doing that for the next two months, so fill up one, bring it back. Uh, we'll make sure that they get it. Uh, Miranda's taking care of that for us, and, uh, and then you can get another one. So uh, we just want to encourage you uh, as to do that as you keep walking through that. If you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, uh, turn to Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 9. Thinking through the text this week, I, it's probably not a more pointed passage of Scripture than 935 through chapter 10. Uh, pointed in that it is very pointed regarding the life and the commitment and the call of followers of Christ. Uh, I hope you will Today, as we try to work through this text, uh, I can tell you that we will not unpack it. Uh, 
it, there's too much there. I want to point to a few highlights through the course of this text. Uh, but I just want to say from a personal testimony, uh, every time I read this text, I, I'm convicted. Uh, I'm convicted because I see the failure in my own life in regards to uh, my attitude toward the world and people around me, uh, my own um, uh, my own drive in my life toward living in such a way uh, that would give uh, that would give a, a clear sign that this is what I'm about, who I am about. Um, you'll see what I'm talking about in just a moment. Uh, we have already been reading about it in Scripture. Uh, we recognize that God is working salvation, that the world is in a mess, our own lives are in a mess, uh, but God is working salvation in the world. Uh, we sang about His sovereignty. We pointed to His grace and the fact that He is working salvation in our midst and therein rests our hope. And that's the reason that even in our confession we saw that sinners were coming to Jesus and Jesus was coming to sinners because He has come and we'll recognize again why as we refer back to uh, the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel where Jesus uh, was being sent. He came uh, to save His people from their sins. And as we talked about when we looked in Matthew chapter 1, his people included all people. Uh, and to give consideration to that, and we have been talking about his authority, and I want you to hear our text today as we are reading it section by section, that the backdrop of all of this is the authority that we have already seen displayed in the accounts of Jesus and the things that he is pointing to, the things that he commands, the things that he tells us to do, the things that he does, the things that drove him in his life. Him being uh, King Jesus, the one who was sent by God, the one who is given this authority over every aspect of all of life everywhere. I want us to hear and see this in this context. Beginning uh, in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And this is a summary or statement of his earthly ministry. This is what he is about. This is what he was doing. He was preaching the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. In other words, he was saying that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he coupled with that uh, in being involved in people's lives. He healed, he raised from the dead, he touched hurting people. Now pay close attention to verse 36. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion for them. 
I was thinking this week, even again, at the way I look at people. Just think about it for just a moment. Might have even happened to you this week. Standing in line, looking at people in front of you, and being critical of them. Standing in line, waiting on someone to wait on you, maybe they're running a cash register or whatever it is, and you're thinking how slow they are. Maybe even thinking uh, how unintelligent they seem to be because they are not moving and working and doing things the way that you think that they should be doing. Not at all giving consideration to any pain, any suffering, any struggles, much less any sin, but being critical and condemning. Jesus, on the other hand, notice, looks and he sees the crowd and he had compassion for them because this is what he saw. He saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep in and of themselves require leading. They require protection. They require care. They require attention. In fact, sheep won't make it on its own. Not like a cat. A cat's going to get out and he's going to find his own way. The sheep is not going to find its own way. And that is the very reason that when Jesus was looking at people, He identified them, He identified us as sheep. Why? Because He recognized that they were harassed and helpless. In other words, they were in a dangerous, precarious situation and they are unable and were unable to help themselves already this morning we have sung about the very thing that we were in a state in a situation that we were helpless we can't save ourselves we can't produce righteousness on our own we can't win the heart of God by our goodness there's nothing that we can do as sheep as sinners as helpless people there is nothing that we can do that will ensure life here and nothing that we can do to ensure eternal life jesus looked at the people and he had compassion he was moved he actually was so moved within himself that as he looked at he looks at him with a broken heart i make mention of that because of what he says in verse 37. And then he said to his disciples, seeing the people in this condition, recognizing them, his compassion drives him to speak to his disciples, those who were there with him. Probably the twelve included, but not just the twelve most likely. And he says this, makes this statement. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few therefore pray earnestly to the lord of the harvest to send out laborers in to his harvest now he shifts and he's not talking about sheep 
Now he is talking about the people that he looks upon as being a harvest. And a harvest needs laborers. I've driven by fields before. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't, but it happens. I've driven by fields before that were unable to be gathered. In other words, the, the, the fruit of that field was still laying in the field, spoiling, because there were no laborers to gather it. May have been because it just didn't show up. May have been because everybody else was busy as well, and they couldn't get laborers there to pick the watermelons, to pick the peppers, to do the things that needed to be done to bring the harvest in. Jesus sees the people that he's looking upon. He's moved with compassion. He recognizes that they are in a desperate situation, a helpless situation. They can't harvest themselves. He's looking at them and he is recognizing that herein is the harvest not a harvest toward judgment, but a harvest toward salvation. But the laborers are few. He makes note of that. But the laborers are few. And he says, therefore, pray. In preparation for the day, I began to think, and uh, even in the course of that, even read, it's probably not what the disciples expected to hear. Jesus is looking in upon them with compassion and he is saying that there is a harvest that needs to be gathered. Then it, we would think that immediately the first thing would be to, well, let's go and get a be, about, be about it. Let's be a part of it. But that's not what he says. He says, let's therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. In other words, let's begin to pray and be concerned about the things that God is concerned about. Let's be concerned about the things that the Lord of the harvest is concerned about. Let's be concerned about these people and gain a heart for these people and pray for laborers, not that someone else necessarily would go, though that may be, but the more that they prayed, they would begin to get a sense and an understanding of this heart that Jesus has for these people, because they need people. They need people to go to them. We prayed just a moment ago for some groups of people who need people to go to them. The Bisa, the Dagoma, the Manpruli, the Frafra, the Mosi. And we could list 10,000 names of tribes of people around the world, groups of people around the world who need to hear the gospel. Because when Jesus looked upon them, he saw and recognized that here are sheep without a shepherd. And they are in a dangerous and precarious situation and they can't help themselves. You know, the fact is, is we can't help ourselves either. We can't help ourselves. But we need to hear and understand that when Jesus looks at us, 
He sees us and knows us to be helpless. And He looks upon us with compassion. Now He's not looking upon us with compassion to somehow or another just take us in in a way that doesn't change us. That would not be helpful at all. We are helpless. He's looking at us with compassion toward the end that His grace would work in our lives to bring about salvation. He's not looking upon us with compassion in the way that we often talk about, well, Jesus loves us and Jesus loves everybody in such a way that He would just embrace all that comes with us. He does bring us in in that condition. But notice in the end, He sees that group of people. He sees us as a people who need to be helped. A people who need to be saved. Not in a condemning way. No, our condemnation comes when we reject Jesus as we have heard in John's Gospel. Why mention this? We are always talking about missions. Our very statement of existence that we love God supremely, we love others sacrificially, and we live in the world distinctively is, is driven by a mission. And the mission is, is to, one, proclaim the message of the gospel, to live it and work, have it work in our lives in such a way that we do look distinctive from the world. Not so that we can just be apart from the world, but so that we can represent Christ who doesn't at all look like the world, but looks at the world recognizing that the world is helpless and hopeless apart from Him. The point is, is that if we don't see the world through the lens of compassion, the same compassion that Jesus had, and recognizing that they are lost and helpless and hopeless apart from Christ, then no amount of talk on our part, or any other church's part, or any other believer's part, will ultimately make any difference in their lives. So what does Jesus do? Well, first he says to pray. Then look in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And, and Matthew places this here, by the way, to help us see what comes next after prayer. There is a calling and setting apart. And he called to him his twelve disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Push pause there for just a minute and turn back over to chapter 9 and see what he does in verse 35. And he went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and doing what? Healing every disease and every affliction. Now we see that he has his disciples pray for workers to go into the harvest. And now he calls and sets apart these men and he gives them authority to do what? To do the very things that he has been doing. And the names of the twelve apostles are these. 
first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and, and make note of this, Matthew the tax collector. Who's writing this? Matthew. He's reminding us, hey, I'm, I'm of this group. I'm, I was the tax collector. I was the one that everybody hated. Uh, I was the outcast. I was the despised. I just want you to know that I'm in this group. That's what God does. He takes the outcast, the despised, the hated, the sinner, uh, and he brings him into his midst. And he says, and I'm here, and I'm the one that he is sending out as well. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas is carried. And then he makes note of that, who betrayed him. Notice that somewhere in the providence and sovereignty of God, even he has been given this authority for a season. And then in verse 5, these twelve Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Have you ever wondered why he did that? We read in Matthew chapter 1 that at least included in Jesus' genealogy are all these people who are not Jews, a, a pretty significant number that are named. And yet here, when he sends out his 12, he tells them, don't go to the Samaritans. Turn over to Luke chapter 9, and you may, we may see a little bit about why he said don't go there yet. In Acts chapter 8, we find that they do go, but it, at least in Luke chapter 9, and when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And then notice what two of his disciples said. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? They were not in a position at that point in time even uh, to begin to think about going there with the gospel. Uh, they're still in their minds, they're wanting to call down fire on them. Because not only have they rejected Jesus, um, uh, but they were cultish in the way that they worshipped. And, and in their minds, they're not, the disciples aren't looking upon them yet with compassion. And then for sure we know that Jesus is the one, He is the King of the Jews. He's the one who's been sent. The point is, is Jesus says that there are boundaries and parameters about where you'll go now, but you go there, and then let's continue to read. Verse 7, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why? He has given them authority to heal diseases, and to touch the hurting. Again, all of those were pointed to the fact that he does care about those things in the lives of people. Uh, he cares about your hurts. He cares about your pain. 
Some of you have had procedures this week and Jesus cared about it and things are good. Others of you have had procedures this week and Jesus cares about you and you're uncertain. Some of you have had procedures uh, in the weeks before and you found out Jesus cares about you and He is providing and sustaining you and holding you. God is at work in all of these things. But our ultimate need, please hear this, our ultimate need is to understand that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, there is coming a judgment. There's coming a judgment. And at the end of that judgment, whatever it is that you have done with Christ, and I want you to know that lip service is not enough. A good thought toward God is not enough. All that will do will bring judgment down on you. It is when you turn to Jesus, surrender your life, which you're going to hear in just a moment what that looks like. The reason this is so pointed in this text is everything that he has to say about the life of a disciple is connected with the fact that he has compassion, but there is a work in the midst of that compassion in your salvation that points beyond you, that points back to his kingdom, that points back to what he does in our lives, that points back to what drives us, that points back and forward to all that we are to do. He says, Say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then do what? He says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journeys or two tunics or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, Find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the days of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Why is that significant? Jesus is sending them out with authority to do His work. And if they are received, He says, stay there and continue to invest in them. And if they reject you, His point is, I want you to keep moving. I don't want you to be restricted. I don't want you to be tied to what you are gaining. I don't want you to be encumbered with things I don't want you to see life and ministry and all that you do about the gathering of things. I want you to continue to move. He is pressing toward a sense of urgency. Why? Because the fields are ripened to harvest. The fields are ripened to harvest. We are laboring in this field to gather this harvest. That means we are to be about it. Now he's telling his disciples this. This is an application for us as well. That we need to be about that work. We only have a set number of days here in this life. And the older you get, the more you'll realize just how short those days are. 
Because you'll look back and you'll see time wasted and you'll recognize that I have more time behind me than I have in front of me. And if I haven't done is what I, what I feel like I could have done or should have done in the past, I, it, there's this sense of urgency about living, not about gathering things, but if our heart is toward the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not about these things that Jesus is even telling His disciples to not be concerned about. He is driving this sense of urgency because there are fields of harvest that need to be gathered. Verse 16, we come back to sheep again. He says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's kind of, a, kind of tough, isn't it? Because they're being sent out with authority. Whose authority? They're being sent out with the authority of the Lord of the harvest. But they are being characterized as sheep, and he is sending the sheep out. The great shepherd is sending sheep out. How? I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Our call to worship today was Psalm 74. We selected that psalm. Why? Because the psalmist feels like a sheep in the midst of wolves. The world is turned upside down seemingly around him. Remember the 46th Psalm? Where it says it seems like the world is turned upside down and the waves are crashing in. Well that's the way the psalmist felt in Psalm 74. In the same way. He felt like a sheep in the midst of wolves. And he knows he needs protection. But the psalmist in his lament is saying, But God, I don't, I don't see you doing anything about the wolves. But his boonie reminded us. But what I do know is that you're the God of salvation and you are at work. He is speaking a word of hope. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And then he says this, notice what he says, So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Wise as a serpent and innocent as dove. What in the world does that mean? Wise as a serpent and innocent as doves. Well, he's sending them out in the midst of persecution, and he's going to tell us in just a moment the extent of that persecution and that hardship. He's going to be honest with them about what they can expect in the course of being sent out. Now he's telling them that even while he's there, but I want to point ahead, look in verse 23. Because he says, when they persecute you in one town... He said, uh, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. He is setting them up for a work that even goes beyond His earthly life. 
And he's pointing to a day when they will continue to go when he is not there, but they are still going out with this same authority. And notice what he says. Again, he says, be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Back, I don't know, it's probably been seven, eight years ago. I was with a team. We were in Kamasi, which is the second largest city of Ghana. We had gone over to an onion market. In fact, it was the onion market of that whole region. And, and onions are a big thing. Everyone there eats onions, just like most everyone in here eats onions, except Gay, she doesn't. But like most everyone uh, here eats onions. And there's this big onion market. And all of the markets would come to this onion market to buy their onions to take back to their markets. And they would sell them to the kiosks and they would sell them to the folks who would stand out by the road selling onions. And so you go there and if you long for a good whiff of onion, you can take the strongest onion that you've ever had in your home and you can smell it. And if you could imagine a whole market that covers a city block with nothing but Piles and piles of onions and bags and bags of onions. We were there. Most of the folks at the onion market uh, were without Christ. And so we would go in the onion market and we would just begin to scatter out and we were teaching the gospel. We had done that. Had met confrontation, struggle and hardship. Um... I really believe that by God's grace, we weren't killed. Honestly, I'm not over-exaggerating. Because I wanted to go back to the onion market the next day. And our indigenous worker said, oh no, we can't go back to the onion market. You're not safe. And I wasn't so much worried about safety. And I wasn't seeking to go there to just kind of offend somebody. But the point was that they understood something by the grace of God in regarding this text that I didn't understand. That we needed to be wise as serpents. That is, let's don't run out there and pick a fight today just for the sake of fighting. But let's be innocent like doves today. In other words, let's be wise in where we go and what we do, but as a dove, be willing to go and perch down wherever it is that God takes us. I believe that's the point of what Jesus is trying to say here. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's dangerous. You're going with my authority. That's dangerous. Go everywhere. But be wise enough to know when you need to leave for the sake of another day. A lot in the same way that Jesus did His ministry, wasn't it? He would go somewhere and He would realize that the heat was on and I can stay and press the point and possibly have my life taken instead of laying it down. And in His humanity, He understood that. Or I can save that for another day, the day that is appointed. And this is what He's telling His disciples. He says, beware of men in verse 17. 
for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, or, or what you are to say will be, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. What is he pointing to? Well, he's pointing to the fact that there is hardship that's going to come. They may wind up in jail. They're going to wind up in courts. They're going to be called on to give witness and testimony. There's going to be the time that they will be taken out to be killed. It happened. It happens today. And he is saying... Be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. In other words, when that time comes, you step into it and be willing to go with it and bear witness and testimony. And you're thinking like I'm thinking, how in the world am I going to know what to say when my life is on the line? And the point is here, is that don't be anxious about that. Because you will have what you need to say. Why? Because the Spirit of God will, in fact, direct you in what to say. Because what you have to say is not what you have. But what you have to say is what the Father has given you. I won't take the time today to read the many stories of the martyrs, but I would encourage you, if you don't have, and you've heard me say this before, if you don't have a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs, get it. And it may keep you awake at night, but I often grab my copy and I'll read of martyrs before I go to sleep. Not because it helps me sleep, but it reminds me again of those who have gone before me who have given their lives and remind me that as I rest in the Lord that night, that tomorrow may be a day when certainly in the way that I live should be given as if my life is of no value except for the life that He has given me. Verse 21. Notice what else continues with the life of the disciple. Brother will deliver brother over to death. The father, his child, and his children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then he says, is when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. In other words, there is work to be done. Keep moving. For I truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. You may sometimes wonder what that means. I don't know that I have the answer for you altogether. What was clear was is that He was sending them out and they were going to come back. They would not have gone through all of the towns then. And the Son of Man had come then. He had already said the Son of Man was here before you when He was standing in the synagogue and reading and talking about the Son of Man coming uh, and was there before them and was being revealed before them. Most, not all, 
But most of those who have looked at this text seem to point to the fact that there is in this text directly related to the disciples that he was sending out that all of these things would happen to them at least by the time that Jerusalem falls. When 70 AD, when Jerusalem fell, that all of these things that they could look at and would know that these things would take place and that that would be a mark because God's judgment on the Jews at, at, in, in that sense came at that point in time in history. But it has application for us. Now he presses on and talks beyond that point. Verse 24, notice what he says. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house of uh, the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of this household? So we see already in the struggles and the hardships, at least these things so far. One. They're going to be arrested. Two, they're going to be betrayed by their family. Three, they're going to be hated by all people. And they are going to be maligned. They're going to be maligned. In other words, you will, we will, as followers of Jesus, should expect in the course of our lives this kind of life. And as I was thinking about this text, and even again this morning was dwelling on it, why does this text not grab us? Why do we not identify with this text? And I keep thinking, because, because this is so dissimilar from what we hear about the Christian life and so dissimilar from what we actually experience. And yet, by God's grace, we have been spared these things, at least today. Which presses us even more to look to His glory and His grace, but we are not appreciative of it. We are presumptuous of it. Because our life tells us, and our culture tells us, and our churches tell us, and in so many cases, the sermons and Bible studies that we hear and read, and the books that we have before us, tell us nothing about discipleship like this. It's like, yeah, that was then, but this is now. We should be looking toward prosperity. We should be looking toward garnering things and having things. And no, we should look at people and feel sorry for them, but our feeling sorry for them comes long after we looked at them with contempt and condemnation and being critical rather than being driven by compassion. Verse 26. We get into this part where no fear, no fear, no fear. Well, it would stand to reason that if our lives resembled more of what we have just read, then we would be fearful. But most of us here today are not fearful. We're not at least not fearful of things as it applies to our relationship with God 
through Christ, not fearful of what may happen to us in the course of our ministry and our mission and life. We're not fearful of those things. And, and I don't know that we, have, we don't have a need necessarily in the same way, but there is something to be said about living our lives when our life is really on the line. And notice what he says, so have no fear of them. Who? All of those who would do these things. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. In other words, the things that you will talk about and point to regarding sin and judgment, those things are real and they are going to come to pass. I'll pause here just a minute. For the person here who hasn't trusted Christ... Do you really believe that there's going to be a judgment? Do you really believe that you're going to stand before God one day and that there is going to be a judgment and in His authority you will be judged because you have already rejected Him and you will be condemned and you'll spend an eternity separated from Him? Believer, do you really believe there's going to be a judgment one day? Do you really believe that your family members who are lost are going to be judged and be condemned? Do you really believe that your neighbors are going to die without Christ and spend eternity separated from Him damned and condemned and suffering and there'll be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus was saying all of these things are going to come to pass. In other words, just know that the things that you are saying, that you're speaking of, will ultimately be revealed. Even those things you don't see and you don't know about, that you are saying these things are real and they're coming about. Verse 27, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetop. Then he says again, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. What does that imply? Well, not only is there persecution, not only will you be maligned, not only will you be abandoned by your family, not only are you going to suffer in these ways, but notice some of you are going to be killed. But he said, don't worry about that. What's the worst thing that can happen? Well, the worst thing that can happen is, is that your life can be taken. But what does that mean for the life of a believer? Well, it means that you enter immediately into the presence of God. You say, Jimmy, you're saying that it's just real easy rolling off of your tongue. It's really easy for us to read this. It's really easy for us to read it, but our head's not on the chopping block today. It's really easy for us to believe it because we're not being cast into prison today. Real easy for us to read it, but we're not standing uh, in front of a firing squad. Really easy for us to read this, but we're not on the racks being torn limb to limb. But it's true. And Jesus was pointing to them to this because His authority 
points us to lives of boldness when it comes to missions. And if that's not enough, he says, as you're not fearing, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In verse 29, and are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. In other words, don't fear because the same sovereign God that sees the sparrow fall, he presses on. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. And the sovereign God who knows the count of the hairs that you have, that you once had, that you will have at any given time, it's the same one that holds your life and your soul, don't you think that He is going to take care of you and care for you as He says in verse 31, and fear not, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. He is pressing to not fear for those things, but to do what? But to be bold in our witness. Let me ask you this, and I'm asking me this. Are you afraid to speak to your neighbor about Christ? Or you just not care about them. That's the point here. That's the point. Are you afraid to speak to your co-worker about Christ? Or do we just not care about them? That's the point that he's making. Verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Go back, if you will, to verse 20. Verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child and children will rise against his parents. Those are the kind of experiences and we have, now he's coming in on this end of it and he's saying, no, I haven't come to bring peace. We know that he is the prince of peace. We know that there is no peace apart from him. His point is here. He said everything isn't ultimately first off about peace. The world is in turmoil. But peace is not supreme in the course of this. The preaching and teaching of the gospel. In other words, right now we are to be about a work as a warrior. Again, wise as serpents, but as innocent as doves. Not running in to be an offense, 
but carrying the message of the gospel that will offend. Adam mentioned just a moment ago, even as he was helping us walk through our confession and even in his prayer, we do not like to deal with our sin because we don't want someone of authority to tell us what to do and we don't want someone of authority to tell us when we are wrong. So when we are standing and talking with our neighbors about Christ and helping them, trying to help them understand their sinful condition, they are going to press against that and push against us. But, he says, we do it anyway. Verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Mark this down. This is true of you and it's true of me. You are not going to have life unless you lose it. Giving it to and ultimately giving it up in every case for Christ. Verse 40, whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. What is the point there? Jesus is making this point. If one is to have God, he has to have Christ. He has to have Him, Jesus. I want you to hear that again. If one is to have God, he only has God if he has Jesus. And if he does not have Jesus, he doesn't have God. And if he doesn't have God, then what does he have? He has nothing. No matter what you have here, Jesus is worth losing our life to and for. That is at the heart of the message of the kingdom. That's what drives our mission. It's the reason we prayed for unreached people groups. But it is also the reason we pray for each other. Please hear that. Please hear it in the context of what we're about to sing.